0: Well, hey there. Welcome to the For Jesus Podcast. My name is Luke Simmons. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Church Gateway. And today we have a special bonus episode following up on Ask Anything. So I'm here today with a couple of folks. Uh, First of all is Seth Trout. Good
1: to be speaking with you all. Thanks for having me, Luke.
0: Yeah, Seth. Welcome to the For Jesus Podcast. You and I do the King and Culture Podcast podcast. But, uh, but welcome to this one. You've never, you've never even been on this one. I've never been asked, so it's great to be here. I'm excited to be here. Well, welcome. And also with us is uh, somebody that you heard from at the end of season one is uh, Sean Wilcoxon. Hello. How are you, Sean?
2: I'm doing great. How are you guys?
0: Great. So, Sean, you get kind of a special role today. Not only are you just producing, but you actually get to be the one asking the questions. And these aren't your questions. No. Uh, we did Ask Anything Sunday on January 3rd. I didn't get to be there. I, I was homesick with COVID. I'm recovered now. Um, but I wasn't there. Seth, you were there. Matthew was there. And it's kind of a tradition that we've done over the last number of years where um, people will just text in questions and we'll do our best to answer them. And so a ton of questions came in. A lot. That we didn't answer on Sunday. And more even came in than we're going to be able to answer in this episode. But we wanted to do just one more follow up episode to answer some of the questions that uh, we didn't get to on that Sunday. And I'm glad because it means I get <laughs> to actually participate
1: now. So it'll be really fun. I think. I think we had like over 90 that we didn't get to. Mm -hmm. And I think, Sean, you consolidated these down.
2: Uh, I filtered them down to about
1: 30-ish. Cool. Yeah. So we'll hit all the themes, Yep. even though we may not hit the particulars. So if you're really hoping that your question as asked gets answered, probably not. Maybe it will. But hopefully we'll hopefully (laughs) touch at least the general theme of, of everything.
0: So one of the things we always say on the front end of those Ask Anything Sundays is that there's things of differing importance, right? We usually read from First Corinthians 15 that uh, there's the gospel, which is of first importance. Not every question here we're going to answer is of first importance. The more related to a first importance it is, the more important it is. Um, but the other thing we also say is we really want to kind of let this begin the conversation, not end it. Um, you got a bunch of questions. We're going to try to answer them pretty rapid fire, yep. which inherently means... Um, there's always more you could say. Mm-hmm. And so um, we we hope this isn't kind of a conversation ender for those of you listening. But uh, why don't we dive in?
2: So, uh, Sean, where are, we, where are we starting? So we're going to start with some of the maybe more lighthearted, fun questions that oh, were okay. asked. Great. Uh, so the first question is, how accurate do you think VeggieTales is about teaching kids about the Word of God?
1: That's a really good question. One of the things I know about that is Phil Vischer, the creator of VeggieTales, so that it wasn't that accurate for teaching kids the word of god and he made it so <laughs> there i you have it. I feel like it could probably really help teach some bible stories but it's not going to really teach them about gospel centered how to read the bible so i wouldn't use it as a huge crutch
0: yeah i'm not that familiar with veggie tales um but i am more familiar with actually the shows that Phil Vischer has done in more recent years that are actually on right now media and anyone who's part of our church, um, can go to gateway.redemptionaz.com slash right now, and you can get a free access membership to right now media. It's kind of like the Netflix of spiritual growth, but they got a bunch of kids shows on there. One of them is a Phil Vischer show called what's in the Bible. Mm. And it's kind of like, you know, the Muppets go to seminary is kind of how I think of it. And so I, it's actually, I think very intentionally by Phil Vischer, a much bolder, clearer, more straightforward effort to really try to teach kids theology and my kids love it.
2: Very cool. Uh, Next question is, do animals go to heaven?
1: Uh, That's a good question. So we see in all the prophets that there will be animals in the new creation. So when Jesus comes back and make all things new, animals will be there. So animals will be in heaven and even animals that have gone extinct, I think will be in heaven. But I don't think animals go to heaven in the sense that I don't think my dogs have eternal souls. I think that animals that die, die, but God will, in the new heavens and new earth, have animals that are there. So, when so
0: your dogs <coughs> may or may not be in heaven, but there will be dogs in heaven.
1: My dogs may or may not be. I'm leaning hard towards will not be.
0: <laughs> is that based on the particularities <laughs> of your dog, your dogs? or It is not a-
1: based on the faithfulness of my dogs. It's based on what I, what I think the thrust of the Bible is teaching. Okay. So a lot of times, even when like young kids will ask me, will my dogs be in heaven? I say, there will be dogs in heaven. Which is a little bit of way of exactly answering the question as asked, but I think we can look forward to the lion laying down with the lamb in the heavens and the earth.
2: And then uh, to kind of uh, end the lighthearted section, we have what was one of your highlights for the church in 2020? Huh. I feel you guys
1: answered a question kind of like that, I thought. Yeah. Maybe it wasn't one highlights. Of, one of my personal highlights was... Uh, dedicating my son. That was a great Sunday. It was mm. fun. My mm. family came. And it was like one of those moments where, you know, a couple of my siblings were going through something pretty tough, and I saw how tough it was on my dad. That was like the weekend before we dedicated Jay. And kind of there's like a sobriety in that moment of going, I have no idea what the next – 30 years are going to be like trying to parent hmm. like the amount of varieties of suffering that he'll experience that his friends will experience. And it, it was just like a, an encouraging morning for me to be like, there's like, this is a come what may commitment to be a parent. Hmm. And I have a church around me. That's going to help me when I hit stuff. I don't know what to do with. Hmm. So that was very personal highlight was yeah. educating Jay.
0: Yeah. So two for me, one would be, um, the day that, uh, my daughter, Abby's friend, Kara, one of her best friends is a, is a, gal named, a young woman named Kara in, our, in ninth grade. And she got baptized this year. And um, Abby and all of the friends in our group were just super, super excited. It was a really special moment. So that was a highlight. And then also um, for me was the last day that, that I preached to just the camera. Um, and we were going through Isaiah 40. And actually that day I, I really kind of insisted. I said, Molly, I really want you to come. I want you to be there. And so she sat there in the empty room and it was actually pretty emotional because it was kind of um, I think for Seth, for you and I preaching, I mean, preaching to a camera is not what, when you go, man, I, I love preaching it. You're not talking about just talking into a camera. And so it was a real kind of grieving and spiritual growth process to just go through that as a preacher and throughout that whole series of months, Molly had never gotten to be part of that moment. And so I really just, for whatever reason, just wanted her to be part of that moment. And it was, um, if anyone were to go back and watch that sermon, you you would notice that I'm actually a bit more emotional. And I think a lot of that has to do with just that Molly's in the room,
2: so. Very cool. All right, so that kind of ca- that ends the lighthearted section. So we're gonna get into the more- Heavy-hearted. Heavy-hearted okay. section. <laughs> To kick it off is what is the church's stance on reproductive rights and abortion?
1: Yeah, that is not lighthearted anymore. That no. is that is serious. Fair. Uh, so one, I like the way this question's asked, but I'm gonna because I know like the person who's asking this is going, where are you all at on this? But I do think that on uh, any of these questions and this type of phrasing may come up, what is the church's stance on blank? And I just feel like that's not a bad question, but I just think a more important question is what does the Bible teach about or what does God say about because churches get things wrong and that's, I'm okay with saying that. And so it's on a personal level. It's almost always more helpful and meaningful for me to have to wrestle with God's authority over issues rather than institutions that are, I do think born of the spirit, but are still inhabited by sinful humans so God's view of reproductive rights and abortion, even that, you know, the way you phrase it, right, is it a reproductive rights question or is it an abortion question kind of tips your hand. I think both in Jeremiah 1 and in Psalm 139, you have language of God forming us in the womb, that God's personal involvement in the life of people does not wait until birth, but actually happens pre-birth. So there's a personal engagement with persons in the womb, that matters a ton. Even in the New Testament, you have a John the Baptist leaping so the the Holy Spirit is somewhat at work in John the Baptist's life before he's born. And so right away, you kind of see that there is a a humanity and a personality and interaction that God has with unborn persons, not fetuses like clinical, but persons. And so I think biblically and scientifically, when you have Uh, the sperm and the egg come together, and all of a sudden you have a new strand of DNA. That point of conception is scientifically and biblically, I think, the most uh, logically point that you can point to um, as it relates to what it means to be a person. That being said, I know that most people who have abortions do so out of economic insecurity. And so being pro-mother and pro-woman is a huge part of being pro-life. And uh, Christians should really advocate for I think policies and procedures that support moms who are in really, really hard situations. Mm. And that's one of the reasons why uh, organizations like uh, Choices, Pregnancy Center are really close to our heart. Yeah. Awesome. I, don't, I don't really have a lot to add, but, but it's a serious question.
2: Cool. All right. This next question, <clears throat> the church easily easily takes a stand on controversial issues such as abortion, homosexuality, et cetera why hasn't the church taken a stance on the presidential candidate considering this person will greatly shape decisions on the legality of abortion, gay marriage, religious freedoms, et cetera?
0: Yeah, I'll answer that question. Um, I think it's because um, it's much clearer. I can make a much clearer biblical case about why a particular issue is or isn't aligned with God's heart and with the word of God than I can a particular person, right? A person is is inherently a complex combination of character, personality, viewpoints, um, influences, and um, it's, uh, you know, I, th- I think it, that's why it's much easier to kind of say, hey, here's a view on homosexuality or here's a view on abortion or uh, whatever the case may be. So um, I think that's a big part of it. The other part of it is um, I just don't really feel like that's the church's role is to, um, uh, to lobby for any particular candidate. Um, I think if we just are clear about the issues and then we can trust Christians to navigate those. Um, and especially because uh, in, in each case, at least if you look at the the party platforms, um, neither one is fully aligned with the Bible. Um, both would be kind of out of step in some way mm. with the scriptures. And so, Um, it doesn't feel like I could stand up. I mean, I feel like as a pastor, a lot of what my job is to go is thus saith the Lord and to do it with the book. And I can't really say thus saith the Lord about any particular candidate, Um, at least from an endorsement standpoint. I could probably have more warrant to critique political candidates on the basis of scripture, but not to offer a kind of, the Bible would say that we should support XYZ candidate.
1: Yeah. The other thing I would add is that just how the biblical authority and authority of God works its way out in a constitutional Republic full of pluralistic voters is a little bit complicated. Sure. And really solid conservative Bible believing people can disagree about the way Christians ought to carry and try to legislate uh, God's law into human law. And I, I have respect for people who disagree with me on that. And I don't want to be overly dogmatic in that area. Cool. Awesome.
2: Uh, next question is, if there's one God, why are there more than 4,000 religions?
1: That's a really good question. The The easiest answer is that uh, humans are sinners and they're constantly trying to create religions that fit their uh, sense of self or their their sense of what it means to know God. And so the multiple religions problem is uh, a product of sin. And even we see in the old Testament, a ton in the new Testament, a little um, this idea of lowercase G gods, that there's one Lord above all the gods. And so a lot of these false religions are worshiping real lowercase G gods, you know, what you could call demons or uh, these kind of lesser divine beings that God's created that have, rebelled and gone astray and are leading people astray. And so I think that that category matters a ton. So in that sense, um, there's a Hebrew word, there's a Greek word called henotheism, uh, as opposed to like monotheism. Henotheism is the worship of one God. And so the Bible is more of a henotheistic book than it is a monotheistic book, because it talks a lot about God's There's one God who's over all gods. So the Bible is constantly saying there's one most high God. There's one God worthy of worship. There's one God who's the sovereign one. And there's these other lowercase g gods. And so a lot of the religions are worshiping these lowercase g gods. And I do think that humanity's inability to grasp the one true God is the central product or the central problem of the whole Bible. And so... Uh, If you read the Bible, you see there's one true God and people are constantly missing the mark on how to worship him. That's the essence of false religions. The only
0: thing I'd add is it's just I do think it is a kind of striking evidence that uh, the the Bible says that God has put eternity in the hearts of men. And so it is interesting that you go to any culture anywhere and they worship gods. Mm. Um, There are not, uh, to my knowledge, any kind of atheistic tribes in different p- parts of the world that it just don't worship anything. Mm-hmm. Um, every, everyone's worshiping something. And so um, even through the distortions, you see that as, as image bearers of God made by God, there is this insatiable longing to tell a story about where did this come from, why are we here, um, which means that people all over the world are worshiping, however distorted, um, but even that kind of, I think, is a is an indication of of people's longing for
2: an inherent kind of knowledge that we're created by God. That's good. All right, next question. This one's a little bit of a long one. Sometimes it seems like the Old Testament looks over sexual sin like polygamy, i.e., Abraham. We don't necessarily see him repent for that, do we? Yet these men are considered men of faith and an example. Are we to assume that they are righteous because they've repented? how does that compare to people of faith now that live their lives with chronic sexual sin like homosexuality? that's a good question.
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, First, there's a pragmatic answer that I feel in my own life. You know, there's, anytime you sit across the table from any one person, there's a hundred sins that we could talk about and address. Like I'm, I have way more than a couple sins I have to deal with, right? right? And so, so even like as we who are here, Sean, Luke, and myself, like, try to shepherd one another, there's, like, a, you got to pick which battles to pick when as we're trying to, like, lovingly call another faith and holiness. And so the Bible does that a little bit, too. Like, there's, uh, as they're working with Abraham and his possibility of being blessed to be a blessing and establishing a covenant, there's kind of, like, a big rock, smaller rocks, and then the sand thing that God does is... He, you literally have to pick something first when you're writing the law, right? So the first commandment is the first commandment. There had to be a first commandment (laughs) when you write stuff down. And so uh, part of that is what's called like the doctrine of progressive revelation. I mean, that over the course of the Bible, God is revealing more and more about himself and about his law into the world. And so we should expect that by the time we get to revelation, we know more than Adam knew, we know more than Abraham knew. And so we as Christians now have the full witness. And so we're kind of in that sense, accountable to more than Abraham was even accountable to. So you got to go do things in order and God does that as, even as he's addressing sins and working with sinners who are in process, trying to participate in God's mission.
0: Yeah. I think the first part of that question said, it seems like the old Testament uh, overlooks polygamy. And I would actually probably contest that as an assumption. Um, There's not nearly the kind of explicit condemnation of it. Like there is say with homosexuality in the old Testament. But when you read (laughs) the old Testament, there is no story where polygamy goes well. I mean, it is just like over and over and over a disaster. So like it's uh, the old Testament's not any kind of ringing endorsement for polygamy, even if it's not condemning it at kind of every turn. So I, I think actually the, the, the example of the old Testament is providing a warning related to polygamy. Um, And so whether it's kind of an implicit warning or an explicit command to avoid a particular sin, we should avoid the particular sin. And so um, I would be concerned about someone who would say, well, I feel a particular sexual temptation and, you know, the Bible kind of allowed, like it didn't really come out and, Put on blast every other kind of thing, so this kind of gives me a pass. That's kind of a little bit maybe how this question feels, even though I'm sure it comes from a much more anguished place of actual personal temptation. But it it feels like anytime we're kind of looking for a way out, where what I really want is to express myself sexually, um, rather than saying what I really want is to be most holy. What I really want is to be most obedient. What I really want is to be most aligned with with God's expectations and his, his description in the Bible of what a thriving life really is. We're
1: kind of looking for the wrong thing. One thing too is that I would notice cause I've heard this argument, like God doesn't care about polygamy clearly. It's like, well, the first time we see polygamy talked about, and introduced matters a ton. And so the form of the way that we first meet polygamy would be teaching that it's obviously bad. And that's in Genesis three, we have the rebellion, the disastrous Adam and Eve wander from God. Then in Genesis 4, we have the hostility that results from the rebellion, right? Cain kills Abel. And then in Cain's lineage is the first example we have of polygamy. And so the fact that polygamy shows up in Genesis 4 immediately after the fall, right after a brother kills a brother, polygamy would have been seen as like step one, rebel from God, step two, kill your brother, step three, polygamy like the, it's, it's in the chain of yeah. wandering away from God's design.
2: Good. All right. Next question. How can we latch to Jesus during hurt, pain, et cetera?
0: Yeah, I'll take this. Um, <clears throat> you know, I think one of the most amazing things about Jesus is that he enters into our hurt and our pain. He doesn't stay distant from it. Um, the fact that he comes, and puts on flesh and dwells among us. Um, Isaiah says that he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Um, That, that Jesus was lived a life with lots of pain and lots of heartache, uh, betrayal uh, the death and suffering of loved ones. Um, I mean, he just at every turn is suffering, including the suffering that he himself endures on the cross. And so, when we're finding ourselves in times of hurt and pain, we really do have the fellowship of his sufferings is the language of Paul in Philippians three. And so um I I think the I think the answer is actually hidden in this question. How can we latch on to Jesus? You latch on to Jesus and you cry out to him and you call out to him and you um you Express your pain, and you express your hurt, and you ask him to be close to you. Uh, Psalm thirty-four, eighteen says, "The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit." And uh, Jesus Himself is is near to us in those moments. And so, um, the Puritans used to have a saying. They used it in a variety of phrase, a variety of context, but they would say, "The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay." And suffering, um, the, the heat of the sun, it can harden you if you turn away from Jesus or it can melt you and actually uh, draw you closer to him. And I think a lot of the people that I know who really have a close walk with the Lord would say it was actually the times of suffering and pain that deepen that, that relationship with Jesus even more than the times of blessing and, and, uh, comfort.
1: One, one just observation is that in our rooted classes, we do an exercise on what God has used to grow people. In their faith, we just ask everyone in the room, what's the number one thing guys used to grow in your faith? And every time without exception, suffering is the number one answer. Wow. That's yeah, that's insightful. In seven out of seven rooted classes in the last two years. Hmm. Awesome.
2: Our next question is why is predation, violence, and death such an inextricable part of creation? Why did God create a world where animals killed each other for other for millions of years prior to humans?
1: So that's a great question, and there's parts of that within that question that are possibly contestable millions of years prior to humans. Uh, I'm not sure I believe that. I might. I don't know. But anyway, I don't think that is a hard question. So the, the why does God allow suffering question is— uh, it, it re- it, But this is a
0: bit more yeah. even like why does it seem like violence and death, animals eating each other— people yeah. hunting animals why is that violence kind of seem so normative you talked earlier about the lion laying down with the lamb Yeah, right? we yeah. kind of imagine a world where there won't be quite the violence that there is now but like will there still be carnivorous animals yeah in the new heavens and the new
1: earth will we eat bacon in the new heavens and new earth oh dear lord i hope so <laughs> yeah so the heart of this question i appreciate why is this bad stuff kind of part of the design uh, the most biblical answer is the Bible doesn't answer that. So there's that. Uh, the second thing I'd say from like a, an aesthetics perspective, or like God's desire to be symbolic and even his creation is the picture that death creates life, that love that acts in the death of self is the means of life that when in love we give of ourselves that Jesus death leads to life that even in God's weaving together of creation, something in his mind is trying to weave the narrative of Christ's death for our sin that would lead to life. So this principle, whether it's plants dying, so whether you're a vegan or a carnivore, something has to die to of life, mm-hmm. like calories must transfer, and that requires death. But this principle of death creating life is something that God wove into the fabric of creation, And it really culminates in the cross and in the resurrection of the son on our behalf. And so there is something in God's artistic hand that wanted that to be part of uh, the narrative. That doesn't really solve the problem of suffering, sure. but there is a kind of redeems or at least creates a beauty to the theme that love acting in death creates life.
2: That's good. Our next question where in the Bible does it say that homosexuality is a sin? How do you love a family and friend who identifies themselves as transgender without denying your allegiance to God and biblical truth?
0: Um, yeah, so there's a few different places. I believe um, there are seven specific references um, to homosexuality in the Bible. All of them are negative. There aren't any that are positive or even neutral. They're all condemning it. Um Romans one would be a place. First Corinthians five, six. It's First Corinthians six would be another place. Um, Leviticus 18. eighteen would be a place. Um, I don't know that I have the other three off the top of my head. Do you recall the other three places? No. Yeah. So, um, so I I think the um, I think the main thing I'd say there is just there's not an instance in which it's viewed as
1: neutral or positive. Yeah. I mean, the most explicit one in Leviticus 18, 22, you must not lie with the man as with the woman that is an abomination. Yeah. And then, well, and it's interesting in Romans one, because in
0: Romans one, uh, the apostle Paul says, even there, even the women were exchanging natural relationships for relationships with other women. And, you know, some people will make an argument that. Well, Paul wasn't really condemning homosexuality because homosexuality in the first century was mostly uh, committed, loving relationships um, between an older man and maybe a younger man, but it was a committed, loving relationship. And Paul's saying, no, uh, even even their women have exchanged this. Even their women have gone opposed to the way that uh, God has designed um, men and women to be in sexual relationships within marriage. And so... um, no matter how you, what kind of gymnastics you try to do to say the Bible doesn't condemn homosexuality, th- the unequivocal fact is that it does. And so, at that point, then you have to wrestle with: What do you do with it? Will you submit to it? Will you follow it? Will you explain it away? Will you ignore it? Will you disobey? How you know? How do you want to think about that? So,
1: yeah, as far <coughs> as the question about loving a family member or friend who identifies as a transgender, those deny allegiance to God and biblical truth, this is actually one of the things in our. Covenant members document or membership packet that one of the questions you raise is so, if someone who is female XX identifies as male, can you refer to that person using he or him pronouns, or are you betraying biblical ethics? And so, we actually link in that document to two articles one arguing for here's a reason why you can on the basis of hospitality, and here's another reason why you can't because. Uh, you don't want to affirm non-truths. So even a membership packet, we'd say, like, this is requires a ton of wisdom, requires a spirit, and it requires really e- endeavoring to see people as humans, not just as um, issues with skin on. And so I recommend folks who are personally wrestling with that. Those two articles are really good. Maybe we'll stick them in the show notes so they don't have to find the membership packet on their own. Great. Great.
2: All right, this next question. In Ezekiel 18, the topic is the soul whose sins shall die. And under that, it indicates in verse 6 that approaching a woman when she is menstruating is sinful and that menstruation is impure. Is menstruation sin? How can it be when God designed Adam and Eve and his design is good?
1: So that's a great question. Uh, Here's a short answer is that uh, the theme in the Old Testament in particular, in Leviticus and Ezekiel, is that uh, life is in the blood. And so the Bible has this category of reverence for blood. Blood is the source of life. We don't take it. We, we take it seriously. And so the other thing I would say is like this idea of pure or impure, we tend to assume that all pure impure categories are morally pure, morally impure, whereas in the Old Testament, they had a whole category of ritually pure or ceremonially pure. And so menstruation is not a matter of moral impurity, but it is a matter of ritual impurity or ceremonial impurity. And the reason it's a matter of ceremonial impurity is because it has to do with the fact that life is in the blood. And so the Israelites were really careful with blood in general, and it was used in atonement sacrifices all the time. And so it's just like you wouldn't go marching into the Holy of Holies, where they sprinkle the blood of the lambs to atone for the sins of the people. You would simultaneously not go marching up to a woman who's on her period or who's menstruating. And so there is actually equating the uterus with the Holy of Holies. That is a place you don't just irreverently go marching up to. So it's actually a pro-life reverence for life reality rather than being like an icky or unclean reality. Thank you, Seth. Great. I actually read an article on that in (laughs) Brill Theological Journal for my dissertation a long time ago. So
0: I'm glad that you're here to answer (laughs) questions like that because I wouldn't have given that clear of an answer. That was great.
2: Great. All right. Uh, Next question is, what do fog machines add to our worship?
0: Um, Not a ton. You know, I wouldn't want to overestimate the value of fog machines. Um, I think w- the way we think about it is that when we have a worship experience, we're trying to do everything we can to draw in all of the senses to be able to um, elevate people's experience of a, of their um, delight in God, their enjoyment of God, um, worship of God. It, it would be a bit, So in a sense, you could ask, well, what do instruments add to worship? Well, they add a kind of musical beauty. Uh, What do fog machines add? They add a visual beauty, especially as they interact with uh, good lighting design. Um, And really the churches, you know, uh, people might go, well, fog machines, that seems like this new contemporary thing. Um, The older version of fog machines was stained glass. Um, you know, churches for centuries had stained glass that was beautiful. That was designed for light to refract through it at certain times of day, that would uh, remind people of the beauty of the story and the beauty of, of who God, of who God is. And so that that's kind of the idea of it is just um, that it it helps the visual experience, um, and it, it just is one small little, not that huge of a deal that um, that just communicates excellence in the the way we try to worship the Lord. It's great.
2: All right. Next question is critical race theory, perhaps known best through the New York times bestselling book, white fragility consistent or inconsistent with Jesus's gospel and why?
1: So the first thing I'd say on this is that almost all secular theories or attempts at trying to explain reality are going to be mixed in their ability to be consistent with scripture. Very few or almost close to none. No theory, like even Marxism, which we would say is hugely problematic, makes some good observations about power and access to means of production. And those are just can be helpful insights.
0: Yeah. Maybe here just to pause on that. I mean, essentially what you're articulating is this doctrine that comes out of the reformed tradition of common grace. Yeah. That in every part of, of creation, there's little bits of grace.
1: Yeah. Even the most stone cold anti-God atheists are made in the image of God and can observe true things about the world, yeah. even though they're not going to faithfully articulate a biblical worldview. So that's my presupposition. So so the question, is it consistent or inconsistent, I would see as a false binary. I think all of these things we need to ask, what are the ways in which it's inconsistent, and what are the ways in which it may be helpful or consistent? So one aspect of Robin Daniels' book, White Fragility, there's a principle that's in there that I think is just generally true, which is that insularity produces fragility. So meaning that if I have an insular life, then when something that is not part of my insular life comes into my life, I am emotionally reactive about that. And so, for example, if I only ever talk to Christians ever, and then an atheist walks up and is like, I believe in evolution. There's like that piece of you in your heart that you're like, I haven't had this conversation since middle school and I'm uncomfortable, right? Or if I only ever talk to Steelers fans and someone comes up and wants to talk to me about why the Browns are great, I'm going to like get, uh, okay. you know? and so, th- so it's, it's, so it's not just about race, but about topics in general. I, f- I found that in my own heart, like it had been maybe two years since I talked to an LDS person or a Mormon person and someone came up to me after one of the services at Gateway and asked me a question about the Trinity and I was more frazzled than I'd like to admit. Hmm. I felt like I was kind of tripping over my words. Yeah. I haven't done this conversation well before. So
0: that'd be an example of a, an insight from a book like that. that yeah. And so one of, the, helpful.
1: one of the points she makes is most of the time, white people generally hang out with only white people. And that produces an, a fragility that makes it hard for some white people to have conversations about race. And I think that like in my own heart, mind and soul, that is a principle that's not really biblical in that like, I don't have a verse for it, but I've experienced the fact that insularity can produce fragility and a difficulty in conversations. There are other parts of that book about universal white guilt, about this reality that um, minorities cannot be racially prejudiced or cannot engage in those things or that um, all white people by definition are privileged and um, that I think need to be evaluated and are oftentimes absolutely inconsistent. Like I don't have a Bible verse that says white privilege is false, but I think that that claim of what do you mean by white? What do you mean by privilege? Those all things can, can end up being pretty inconsistent. Uh, but one of the main things that I noticed in a lot of these things is they're even going back to the question about what about all these 4,000 religions? Is that the theory of like, okay, so there was sin. What do we do with atonement, forgiveness, reconciliation? And a lot of the times these secular theories may make true observations about the problems of society almost always their solutions are totally unbiblical and totally out of line with the heart of Christ and what God is doing in the world. And so any true reconciliation cannot happen apart from reconciliation in Christ. And on that level, basically any vision for society that's trying to talk about how can humanity get together and be united into one new humanity, it's like if that vision isn't an in Christ vision, then it's an unbiblical vision.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 don't know that I would have a lot to add there. Um, I mean, the question I think had to do with not just that book, but critical race theory. And I think you, you'd apply the same thing and go, well, there are aspects of this that are, uh, that aren't necessarily inconsistent with the Bible. And there's a lot that are, and a lot depends on who is talking and what they're talking about. Um, I do think it's really interesting, you know, as critical race theory has become such a boogeyman and such a, um, that's the conversation ender. I can just call you connected to critical race theory and the conversation's over. Um, The thing that I appreciate about what the critical race theory people are trying to do is to go, why is racism such a persistent problem in the world? And whether you agree or disagree with where they would land. And I think there's a lot about we would disagree with. uh, I appreciate that there's at least a race theory
1: yeah, they're at least trying to answer the <laughs> they're, question. They're trying to deal with it. And, and I, I
0: think too many of us as Christians are kind of going, well, racism makes me feel uncomfortable. I don't want to deal with it. So I'll put up critical race theory as a way of making it where I don't have to have any race theory in any kind of wrestling with why this continues to be such a struggle
1: in our world. And I think for us in the church, the one of the big questions you have to ask is, why is the church one of the most persistently segregated places in the world? I mean, maybe not in the world, in the United States. In the United States, sure. Yeah, a lot of places in the world are way more segregated. But why is it one of the more persistently regulated? And to answer that question, you have to do history. You have to look back on how do we get here. The Bible is an overwhelmingly historical document that has a very high view of history, that history shapes people. Remember, remember, remember. And one of the things that I've noticed is I've gone back and done research on that question before I even heard the phrase critical race theory. About trying to understand church history and what happened in the so called black church and so called white church that created this real kind of segregated hour on Sunday mornings. And since then, I've articulated my view of one of the ways that white church, white predominant churches, excluded black people from membership. And I've been told that's critical race theory. And I just thought it was history. And so sometimes I think the critical race theory label is being applied in a way that's just using to dismiss uh, real ways that we as the white predominant church um, have perpetuated the segregation problem. And so I don't want to use CRT as a way of of dealing honestly with history. Christianity, because we're saved by grace, should really give us a ton of freedom when it comes to being honest about history and our shortcomings as a tradition.
2: That's great. Next question. Moving to this large Mormon city, we have had many interactions with their faith. What do you say to a Mormon who says Christians and Mormons are the same?
1: Uh, First, I would say, um, how do you understand Mormonism? How do you understand Christianity? And most of the time, if they're saying Christian Mormons are the same, then they're going to articulate a version of Christianity. And I say, that's actually not what I think Christianity is. Here's what I think Christianity is. That there's one God in three persons, and the second person of the Trinity took on flesh lived a sinless life, died to save us from our sin, rose from the grave. And that's not what Mormons believe. So they're not the same. I think a lot of times they're trying to say it's the same. And I've even talked to some people who have recently come to Gateway from the Mormon church who do have like a strong affection for Jesus, but they're confused about who he is. Hmm. Like kind of like we've heard rumors about this guy. I like him. I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He seems pretty great. Uh, I like Jesus, you like Jesus, we're the same. And I want to say, yeah, but there are very important things about Jesus that we disagree on, very central, like in particular, he did not become God, but he was always God. That's the biggest dividing line. So I always try to come back to uh, who is Jesus, who has Jesus been forever, and who will he be forever. And that tends to kind of help people at least see, uh, because I don't want to argue about... uh, Christian, like the definition of that, but I do want to talk about the person Jesus, and I try and make it about Jesus rather than about which church we go to.
0: Yeah, when I talk to Mormons, one of the things that I try to um, just have as part of the conversation is to go, "Hey, tell me, tell me the Mormon story. Tell me the LDS story of from of who God is, of creation to the future. Tell me the story." And what you find is when you when you talk that way, you realize it's really pretty. It's really different. It's not the same story. If you just talk in kind of categorical terms like salvation or grace or Jesus or savior. um, You can use a lot of those words in really similar ways when you talk to Mormons and you kind of end up actually feeling like, yeah, maybe we do believe the same thing. But when you put those terms in this, in a chronological story, you realize, Oh wait, these, these terms, it's, it's the same word, but it's actually a different dictionary based off of a different
2: story. Yeah, that's great. Um, Next question. Does Gateway buy sermons? This is something I learned about this summer, and I am super curious about this practice among some churches.
0: Great We question. do not buy sermons. I'd be interested in selling some. How do I yeah. sell sermons? <laughs> How do I get in on this racket? That sounds amazing. No, I, I know that there are um, there are churches and pastors that, that pay for typically sermon manuscripts or outlines or things like that. Um, generally speaking, I think... Um, A lot of those products are um, really helpful for pastors that are especially in a kind of bivocational thing where, you know, they may not have the kind of time that Seth or I would have to sit down and really study and prepare and craft a a sermon from scratch. And so um, I don't necessarily have a problem with pastors in that situation doing that. If it's a pastor who's just being lazy, if it's a pastor who's, you know, not studying the Bible for himself and not really putting in the work to try to feed his flock, uh, what they need, then I'd I have a lot less respect for that. But no, that's not a practice that we do.
1: Yeah, Or if they were being dishonest about the source of the material, that'd be a sure. problem. Yeah, I mean, that'd be plagiarism. Be an integrity problem. Yeah. yeah, But no, we don't.
2: All right, this next question, we touched on it just a little bit before, but does the timeline of Genesis and creation disagree with current science stating that the earth is 4 billion years old, or does it just lead to a not-quite-literal reading? as the Bible is at different times literal and sometimes figurative or...
1: Apocryphal. Apocryphal, as in the parables. Uh, so I'd say, one, science doesn't state anything. Science is a method of evaluating information. It's not a dogma. So scientists say things. Schools of thought can say things. So science does not say the earth is 4 billion years old. Also, I think that the predominant evolutionary view is it's 13.8 billion years old. As I just saw
0: an article about how... New readings or measurements or something they they was like another kind of scientific quote-unquote confirmation that 13.8 was the age of the universe
1: yeah well, oh so, nice so sorry i didn't need to add that uh, but i <laughs> just i just read an article about. i read it. a, a like, thing and i like to share about the thing sorry yeah so i will i, I would just uh, generally say anytime we're saying well the science says it's like no it doesn't scientists say things science says nothing science a process and it's very dangerous for us to start seeing sog- science as a body of dogma. Um, one, um, science is always doing the best they can with the information they have, ideally. And information changes all the time. And it's important that we recognize that science is a moving target. And so I would be slow to overinvest certainty into science as a as a, a process because it's imperfect. Um, as far as like the genre of Genesis 1 through 11, there's a great book that I appreciate called Genesis 1 through 11, history, fiction, or neither. Uh, there are people who think it's fiction. It never happened. Moses just kind of wrote a nice poem, and there you go. I adamantly disagree with that view, to be very clear. Yep. I think it's absolutely historical. The question is, in what genre is it um, history? right? Just like there's documentaries that are edited and pasted, and so there's old earth, new earth um, theories. Actually, at Redemption, uh, we make room for people to have different theories of exactly what um, Genesis 1 through 11 is in terms of genre. So I'm sure we have a lot of people, probably a couple of pastors on staff. who think the earth is 6,000 to 12,000 years old. That'd be the young earth creationism. We maybe have a congregants and whatnot who maybe think that um, God would, you know, oversee a billions of year process. You know, a day for the Lord is like a thousand years. What does that mean that he created the earth in quote six days? My personal view is he created the earth in, um, six movements or six, six epochs, uh, and so that book, History Fiction, neither talks about the way that Genesis one through eleven explicitly was written in a form that contradicts the creation myths of the other ancient Eastern narratives, and so it's primarily a an attack on the Egyptian creation stories.
0: Yeah, the only thing I think I would add on it is I, I just as Christians, especially in a in a world that is um, making lots of claims contrary to the the Lord being the creator. I just want to emphasize the Lord created out of nothing and everything that exists exists because he created. Um, and while I tend to most naturally want to read day, meaning a literal 24 hour day, um, I don't necessarily feel like I want to die on that hill, but I'll die on the hill that says the Lord created God in six days. He really did. Um, and however long a day is, whether it's a 24 hour day or a, epoch of millions of years uh, either way what, what i really want to fight for and i really what i really want to train my kids to take their stand on is that the lord made it yeah. um, i don't really um i don't want them to get to a first year <laughs> science class in college and go oh my gosh my faith is crumbling because uh, of the age of the earth i, I want to go no god god made it and however long he took is however long he took but he made it
2: great all right next question why we don't see much from the pastor's wives leading ministries. Why is that?
1: That's a good question. Good question. I'd, I'd love
0: th- to know uh, kind of where that question comes from.
1: Yeah, I it's assume a- the main reason is they don't want to. Yeah, uh, that'd be the main reason. Yeah, there's not really an office of pastor's wife in the Bible. So I just know like with with my wife, and I hope that all of our the pastor's wives feel like this is a freedom to use their gifts and serve in the church in a way that's in line with who God's made them to be in the season that they're in. I don't want the pastor's wives or, and certainly not my wife to feel some pressure to act outside of her gifting. Yep.
0: Yeah. That, that that's exactly how we view it is we kind of say, Hey, when we hire a pastor, we're hiring the pastor. It's not a two for one. And um, so we want um, any pastor's wife or really any, um, any staff person's spouse to serve in a way that fits with their giftings and their callings and their passions. Uh, for some, that's more visible in public. For some, that's less. Um,
1: but uh. I think My wife has more of a gift of hospitality. And, I mean, the fact that God gave me a gift of leadership and teaching does not mean, like, he didn't give households gifts. He gave people gifts. Sure. And so we love leading our small group together, our RC. And part of that's my wife's great hospitality. Yeah. And I can lead stuff so we make good co-leaders sure. for a small group.
0: Yeah. I mean, you mentioned stage of life too. I mean, like Molly, my wife is a very gifted Bible teacher. She's really good at it and she enjoys doing it, but it's a lot of work to do well. And so in the times when she's taught in women's ministries, she's gone, man, I really love this. I really enjoy doing this. I'd like to do more of this, but given the, the needs of especially our young kids right now, she's not in a place to be able to do that. But I think down the line, that would be something she'd do. But that wouldn't mean that every other pastor's wife would need to to be teaching women's ministry. It would just be based on her, her unique gift and call and that sort of thing.
2: Cool. All right, next question. Since we don't live in the same time frame as God, is it strange to pray for those who have passed away or haven't been born yet, more specifically in regards to salvation?
1: Just really practically, we see no examples or commands in Scripture to pray for the past. We see a ton of commands to pray for the future. Yep. So I'd probably flinch that direction. I would get, I'd be really hesitant to get caught up in the God's outside of time thing as it relates to our prayers and mostly say, what is the pattern of prayer that's established in scripture? And that is that we pray for future events, current events, current people, future people, generations to come. There's not a pattern of praying for past people that so, i totally not agree. that I know of at least. Yep. That was my same thought.
2: Great. Next question Is there a place we can look to biblically for wisdom regarding mask mandates, lockdowns, and possible vaccine requirements? What are your thoughts on how we view man's law versus God's law?
0: So if I'm understanding that question, it's basically looking biblically for wisdom, especially regarding government-directed rules, right? So man's laws versus God laws, because it's not saying whether you should wear a mask, but whether the government mandates a mask. Yes. Not whether you should decide voluntarily to quarantine, but whether there should be lockdowns. Not whether you might voluntarily get a vaccine, but whether you'd be required to get one. So um, there's a few different passages that uh, in the Bible that really describe what the government uh, under God is and isn't designed to do. Uh, Romans 13 would be one. I believe it's First Peter 2 yep. would be another. 1 Peter
1: 2, 13 and on.
0: Um, and so um, when it says, what are your thoughts on man's laws versus God's laws? Um, you know, the the principle, especially from Acts chapter five, is that when human authorities command us to do things that God forbids, um, you know, when, when obeying man would require disobeying God, we obey God. <laughs> we obey God rather than man. Um, but in the places where there isn't a, a clear... Um, you know, t- to obey a particular human law would not be to violate God's law, then our our deference should be, generally speaking, to obey the authorities that, that God has put in our lives. Would you add anything to that?
1: Only just a pastoral observation that we hate that as <laughs> a American people, right? as a Christian people. Like, we're such, like, individualists at this idea that, like, I didn't pick that government. I'm supposed to be subject to that authority because uh, there's what we think the Bible, the government should do. And then, yeah.
0: Well, here's, I mean, here's First or Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there's no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment.
1: And the big spoiler alert on that is the government went over Paul when Paul wrote that was way worse than whatever we think we have going on here right sure and so for paul to say that about the romans is significant and i just feel personally implicated by that because i don't like that sure i kind of feel like mind your own business yeah, government but there's a call in my life from the lord to submit great next
2: question how would you respond about a Christian that claims to have healing powers given by Jesus and gives all the credit to Jesus?
0: Um, I'd love that. I think that'd be awesome. If somebody had healing powers given by Jesus and gave the credit to Jesus, I just would want to kind of watch and observe and rejoice in the fact that uh, when they heal people, they get healed. Um, I mean, if, that, if that's real, that, that's wonderful. Um, the thing that I think is just so interesting is just the difference in the level of authority between the way Jesus and the apostles healed and the way even people today who have a gift of healing heal, right? When you read the New Testament, what you see is, is people saying, in the name of Jesus, rise and walk, and it happens, right? The, the, the command creates the, the response, Whereas today, if someone prays for 10 people and seven of them get better, we go, oh, that person has a gift of healing. And so um, I have not encountered people today who have the gift of healing the way that the apostle Peter did say in Acts chapter four. Um, but if someone did, I'd be happy to observe that and and discern it and see like, oh, wow,
1: that's that's really real.
0: I'd, like, I'd, I'd love it if that was the case. Um, it hasn't been my experience that that is the case.
1: Yeah, I think especially on social media, a lot of these folks who like to draw attention to themselves and then afterwards say, All the glory to Jesus. (laughs) Like, it's not that's glory to Jesus is not a tagline. It's actually like an entire way carry yourself. And so, this kind of money making, attention seeking, I have gifts of healing thing just makes me immediately really skeptical in a way that may be cynical that it's unhealthy because there's nothing in the Bible about the gift of healing going away there is reality that the apostles had gifts of healing in a way that was authenticating their authority to author scripture that is different than today. And so I would like to be as open as possible. And I also think someone says like, I have healing powers. I don't think that's even a biblical way of saying that as much as I think the spirit has healed people through me. Like the way that people even talk about it, like it's not like I got this new Harry Potter wand and (laughs) like, it's always like the spirit cannot be controlled. That's right. such a theme, even to John. The wind does what it wants. Right. And the spirit does what he wants. And so the person who's marked by healing and the spirit healing people through them, I think would just would be remarkably humble because they would know this is not me. Hmm. Sure. There'd be no like sense of come see the you know. I had some someone at ASU when I was there come up to me and say, like, Hey, we have a healer in town do you want to come see him? And I said, I'm a healer. And they just walked away. (laughs) Cause I was like thinking like, I can pray for healing. The spirit can heal people through my prayers. I don't need some fancy guy to draw attention to himself and ask for my money.
2: Great. All right. Next question. Many in the church conceal carry firearms on a regular basis. We know that we are committed not to take life, but what does the Bible say about killing in self-defense?
1: So in the Ten Commandments, we have the commandment to not kill, In the King James and the ESV it says, do not murder. The word is shock and it means uh, murder. It does not mean killing. So there's no broad command to not kill. Partly we see justified killings in the Old Testament. We see this idea of protecting life. Uh, if anything, um, the command to not murder uh, the way that like a lot of the reformed tradition understands that is that ends up being a command to promote life. And so all Christian just war theory, uh, which if you want to Google just war theories, like Augustine's is probably the best one, but it's all has to do with uh, maximizing lives saved, even if that means taking a life. And so if someone resolves to be a murderer, uh, stopping them by means is I think a a legitimate biblical category? Great. All right.
2: Next question. I heard a guy say, "I don't listen to John MacArthur because he's a dispensationalist." What does dispensationalism mean?
0: Uh, that's a good question. Dispensationalism. Um, there's probably competing definitions. Um, one of the courses I took in seminary uh, described a few different. You know, sometimes it's referring to um, a different different methods of interpreting the Bible uh, what would be called hermeneutics sometimes it's referring to um, different views of history and how history unfolds sometimes a lot of it has to do in many cases with kind of a view of distinctions between Israel and the church. I'll read here from uh, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. He has in the glossary, just a, his definition of dispensationalism. He says a theological dispensationalism is a theological system that began in the 19th century with the writings of J. N. Darby among the general doctrines of the system are the distinction between Israel and the church as two groups in God's overall plan. The pre-tribulational rapture of the church, a uh, pause that just means that before, uh, before a, a seven-year season of suffering, that there would be a, a pre-tribulational rapture, so that the people of God would be raptured, taken up to heaven before that tribulation. Uh, he continues a future literal fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies concerning Israel and the dividing of biblical history into seven periods or dispensations of God's ways of relating to his people. So that's Grudem's definition. Um, the key sort of beef that I have with it is that distinction between Israel and the church as two groups in God's plan. And the reason I have a problem with that is because the the scripture, especially in Ephesians two talks about how the gospel uh, breaks down the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles and makes us one new man, one new people. So God doesn't have two different ways of relating to people based off whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, he has one way and it's in Christ. And so the, the problem I have Fundamentally, with dispensationalism, would be that it it essentially reerects the wall between Jew and Gentile that the gospel had already uh, knocked down. So, um, but as you get even from that definition from Grudem, it means a lot of different things, right? You're talking about end times. You're talking about a way of reading the Bible. You're talking about lots of different things. And so, um, someone who had a there'd be lots of different reasons why you could be concerned about dispensationalism beyond what I said. so
1: We're going to put a little link in the show notes. I wrote a little blog post for Phoenix Seminary on dispensationalism. Oh, well, you should have answered this question. Sorry. Well, I didn't think... I forgot I did it until oh. you're halfway through your great answer. Oh, great. One of the things that's really annoying is on Phoenix Seminary's website, it says Steve Johnson wrote it, which is just not true and a lie. Seth so Trout wrote it. I'm going to Is that your, like, secret pen name, Steve Johnson? It's pretty lame secret pen name. <laughs> I know Steve Johnson, and he... I'm, anyway, I'm, an e- I'm going to email him. Hey, Steve, get your name off my stuff. He, <laughs> he actually doesn't work there anymore, so maybe I won't email him.
2: All right, great. Next question Where in the Bible do you pull non believers from participating in communion?
1: It's a good question. I think it's uh, like 1 Corinthians at the end well, 11. 11, 11 is my guess, yeah. That's where I go. When Paul talks about do not eat or drink of the bread in an unworthy manner. Mm-hmm. And Throughout church history they've interpreted unworthy manner to be an unbelieving manner. So don't just chow down without understanding and believing what these symbols represent. And even earlier early in the church, non-believers were asked or required to leave the church service before the church family shared the family meal at the table. And so it was like while you were like a new convert, you had to go through catechism to like make sure you really wanted to be a Christian. And so there's like, you were uninvited from the whole second half of the church service. Like you could come for the preaching, but once the eating started, anyone who's not baptized has to leave. And then after you got baptized, then you could take communion. And so that's historically called fencing the table. Mm-hmm. And even like uh, some of the threats you see, the threats is probably too negative a word, but I'm going to go with it. Some of the threats you see of Paul saying, if there's people who are unrepentant in sin, don't eat with such a one. What he's getting at is not like, don't go to lunch with them, but he's saying, don't share the Lord's table with them. And so that fencing of the table saying, for those who are walking in unrepentant sin or those who don't believe in what these symbols represent, don't eat in an unworthy manner because you actually are drinking and eating judgment on yourself. So us asking non-believers not to communion is in a way, I think, us protecting them from a higher judgment. Yeah, that's First Corinthians 11,
0: 27 through 30, basically.
2: All right. We have our last question. Last
1: one. Last one. Oh man. It's gone so fast. Time flies when you're having fun.
2: All right, here we go here at gateway. I have often heard taught and celebrated the fact that Jesus will one day make all things new. Amen. But I haven't heard a clear teaching about the end of the world as second Peter three, five through seven discusses or the judgments in revelation. How do these two truths work
1: together? That's a great, great point. Um, Sorry, someone hasn't heard clear teaching on that. I've, I feel like we've at least tried to have clear teaching on it. But If they hadn't heard it, then maybe it's not been that clear. So, so there's that. Uh, so for Second Peter 3, 5 through 7 is one of, I think, of the more misinterpreted texts. I'm um, talking about the earth being destroyed. The question is like, what does that mean? Uh, so one of the things we see even in Matthew 24 about the abomination of desolation is how it says the earth will be destroyed like in the days of Moses or not, not, I mean, like in the days of Noah, sorry. Yeah. Um, in particular that in Genesis six through nine, we have the story of the flood of Noah, about how the earth was quote destroyed through water, but eventually the earth is going to be destroyed through fire. And so that's what we see in second Peter three, five through seven. And so the destruction that we see in Noah is actually a cleansing that the flood wipes away all the unbelief on the earth and the believers, Noah and his family, are preserved by grace. They have found favor in the Lord. And so the destruction of the earth is not like a Star Wars, uh, the Star Destroyer, or what is that what it's called? I'm, you're asking the wrong guy. And Star Wars planets explode <laughs> because of Darth Vader. Probably. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, yeah. So we kind of, we kind of, any of Any Star Wars people are going to be very disappointed in me. Should have brought know. Stephen Griffith in for this question. I know. <laughs> Stephen, explain to me the Star Destroyer. <laughs> Minor, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Uh, So planets are exploding because of the bad guys in Star Wars, and so we can kind of think about that like God's going to destroy the Earth and explode it into nothingness. But the the destruction story in Noah is actually uh, this burning or this washing away of the flood destroys all the unbelievers and the believers are preserved and so in matthew 24 said it'll be like the days of noah um, it will be except for in this time instead of being destroyed through water will be destroyed through fire i think what he's getting at is in the same way that you burn out impurities from gold the earth will in a sense have all the impurities burned off of it and so this this fire becomes a metaphor for all of that which is not part of god's heart and design will be stripped away and it'll be destroyed, like in the days of Noah. So it will, in a sense, all that is unfaithful be destroyed or taken to Gehenna or to hell. And so that fire. I uh, remember hearing New Testament scholar N.T. Wright asked in front of a room full of non-Christians, "In in the Bible is is hellfire metaphorical or literal?" And he said, "Oh, it's certainly metaphorical." And the whole room was like, Whew. and he said. For something substantially worse than fire. <laughs> <And> everyone because <laughs> <laughs> basically wow. fire is the closest thing we can get to the purifying wrath of a holy God who's gonna destroy all things that are out of line with his heart. And so the earth will be destroyed or cleansed or purified. And that's what I think is going on in Second Peter three.
0: Yeah, in Revelation, I think you just read the sequence of it and what you find is Revelation nineteen and twenty is all kinds of judgment describing those same kinds of fiery uh, judgments, especially on Satan and on those who follow him. And then you have the new heaven and the new earth in revelation 21 and all things made new. So it is that, that fire, that burning, that judgment that precedes the renewal of all things. Interestingly, I, um, remember when I was in high school playing baseball and as a new Christian, I don't know, I saw someone do this or something. I thought it was kind of cool. So I, I wrote initials in my, on the brim of my cap, that uh, it was TTWB, this too will burn. And it was kind of this way of reminding myself, hey, baseball doesn't matter that much. I just want to live for the Lord. And even my hat is going to burn up someday. It's all just going to be destroyed. And um, in that kind of naive new Christian way, I think that probably that mentality was coming from a passage like we're describing um, as if like the end of history is just everything burns up and nothing matters And I just think that actually, as I've gotten to know the biblical story, couldn't be further from the truth that, um, yes, there will be a burning, there will be a judgment, there will be a refining, but the end of history is not a kind of nothingness, but it's actually God making all things new. It's God recreating the world. It's, uh, you know, our future is very physical in a new heavens and a new earth. And I actually find that to be a way more compelling vision than just, well, it's all going to burn up, nothing matters. Um, So... Great. Well Sean, that's it and that's uh, we're so thankful for uh, everyone listening and uh, Seth, thank you for joining us on this bonus episode. Um, we'll be back soon hopefully with the uh, for, typical four Jesus crew with season Alessi two and season two and Reese. And uh, we'll have all sorts of interesting fun conversations and guests. But for now we want to wish you a happy New year and uh, thanks for your questions. See you.